Good morning. If you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. If you're using the Bible from the rack in front of you, you'll find that on page 2. Page 2 of the Bible there. Genesis chapter 3 is where we will be this morning. Before we read, I want you to think about the the first questions that you usually ask when you meet someone, especially for the first time. When you say, tell me about yourself, what is it that you're looking for? What is it that you want to know? You're not probably looking for a detailed physical description. They're right in front of you. You're not uh, asking them about how their body chemistry yields, whether or not they're right-handed or left-handed or what color eyes they have. When you say, tell me about yourself, you're looking for a story. You're looking for where they're from, who their parents were, what their childhood was like. Where they live now, what they do, right? You're looking for a story. Isn't it interesting that when we create, in fact, the oldest things that we have that we have created, it's stories. It's ways that we interpret the world. It's interesting that stories are so important to us. And that's because we're all shaped by our stories, Every single one of us, if you look back into your life, right, there are things, there are good things that shape you, and there are bad things that shape you. All these parts of your story give shape to your life. They, in fact, uh, affect how you interpret the world around you, how you respond to other people. All of that comes out of your story, no doubt. And what we're doing during this Advent season is we're actually looking at an ancient story, an old story that actually shapes every single one of us, even those of us who don't know it very well. It's the story that the Bible tells from the beginning to the end. It's the story of God's kingdom represented in four parts, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And last week we looked at the kingdom creation what the kingdom was like at creation. And I want you to remember how we defined that phrase, God's kingdom, that God's kingdom is seen whenever God's people live in God's place under God's rule. That's what God did at creation when He created by the word of His power. He made a place and He made a people and everything was united under His loving rule. And the dominating characteristic of that creation, of that kingdom, is peace. is harmony between God and man, between man and man, and between man and creation. And we know that peace and harmony are not words that define our current state. So that means that there must be another part of the story. That something happened after that good creation. And we have traditionally called that the fall. And we're going to read about that today in Genesis chapter 3. I am going to read the whole chapter. So if you will uh, bear with me, read along. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you... Eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall lead all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children." Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called the wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers. And the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask for his help in understanding it. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to what may be a familiar story for some of us, I pray that familiarity would not breed contempt, that we would not overlook this crucial moment in our own histories, but Lord, that you would give us insight that the words, that your words would not fall on deaf ears, 
that they would not clatter against hard hearts. But God, that You would soften our hearts, that You would open our ears and open our eyes to understand what You are saying. That You would use the reading and the hearing and the preaching of Your Word to bring about Your gracious change. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you ever wonder why when you're doing something, particularly something that you know is wrong, whether that's small or big, uh, you have that battle in your brain, right? Probably even this morning there was something that you said or did that there was a part of your brain that wanted to tap the brakes, right? That there was a part of you that was saying, don't do this. This is not a good idea. You really don't want to do this, right? And yet there was this other part of you that as, as one side was shooting to tap the brakes, there was the other part of you that was just full on slamming the pedal to the floor and the gas, right? Uh, that, that regardless of what that voice in your head, regardless of the, what the battle going on in your brain uh, was saying, uh, you went ahead and you did it anyway. If you ever stopped and wondered, why am I like this? Why is there this conflict? Why do I do the things that I do not want to do? Why do I say harsh words when I don't need to say them? Why do I always feel guilty after all is said and done? The Bible's answer to those questions comes from this chapter, from Genesis chapter 3, from this moment that we just read about. And what we see happening, and what we're going to unpack today, is that what we see happening is that human sin breaks the peace of God's kingdom order. Human sin breaks the peace of God's kingdom order. That the kingdom of God, in one sense, is broken, is fallen, when His chief subjects, man and woman, rebel against Him. That's the, the, what we see here is nothing less than cosmic rebellion. That the servants of the king look at the king and say, We don't want none. We'll do it ourselves. That's what's going on here. And so what we're going to see as we walk through this idea, what, what human sin does, not just to the kingdom, but to us, right? We're going to see that it begins with rebellion, uh, that it results in uh, shame, and it also results in judgment. It begins with rebellion, and it leads to shame, and then leads to judgment, how does sin begin with rebellion? I want, if you were here last week, remember that when, when God creates, He does so with His Word. And even as He creates man, God's authority, God's loving authority interprets everything about the universe, right? It's not just, God doesn't just create and then leave the creation to figure it out, right? He says, no, this is how the creation is ordered. This is how it will work. And we know that that is good because Genesis 1 tells us repeatedly that as God speaks and as he orders creation, it is good. And it is good, we saw, because God loves us. And in the middle of the garden, this good garden, is a tree, right? Is this test of obedience. If you look back at Genesis chapter 2, just to remind you of how God uh, commands man. He says, you may surely eat. That word is, uh, that word is an emphatic. That's an emphasis word. You may, you may definitely eat of every tree in the garden. You may most certainly eat of every tree in the garden. Eat to your heart's content. 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely, that's there, that, that emphasis again, you will definitely die. So that the terms are clear. We have access to everything in the garden except the one tree. But everything else is good for us. We have access to it all. And so then the first question that the serpent asks is the most important. It's not just the most important for Adam and Eve, but it's the most important for us. It's an authority question. The serpent says, look in chapter 3, verse 1. Did God actually say? That's it right there. That's, that's the question that defines every moment of your life. Did God actually say? Right, think about what's, think about what's sewn in underneath that question. Even in, even in the asking of it. What is, what is the serpent, uh, what is the serpent doing to Eve? Right? He's, He's raising this question of doubt. Is God trustworthy? Does He love me? Is His word good? Can I trust what He says about the things around me? Can I follow Him? Or do I need to figure it out for myself? Do I need to consider Him with all of the other options around me? Is He just one of many voices that I should listen to? Did God actually say? Did God actually say? And that's the question that resonates for the rest of the Bible. The rest of the story hinges on her, his, and our response to that question. What's about to come is a response to that, to the authority, to the good, loving authority of God. Let's look at the conversation that follows. It's interesting, you know, the serpent doesn't start with just this bald statement that God is selfish or that God is mean. He just, he just poses a question that brings God's goodness into doubt. He raises the question of, does God really know what's best for His people? Does God really get it? Does He know what it means to be us? Does God, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Isn't it interesting that God's original command, we just saw this, places heavy emphasis on the enjoyment of eating. But notice how the serpent changes it ever so slightly. He removes the emphasis. He just says, did God actually say... Uh, you shouldn't eat, right? There's no, there's no glad, uh, joyful eating. It's simply just, right, that introducing this idea that God may be holding out on you. God's, God's holding out on what's good for you. And notice too that the serpent, the woman corrects the serpent, but not correctly. Did you catch that? She corrects the serpent, but not correctly. She gets it wrong as well. Look at verse 2. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Right? The, the surety, right? She lessens uh, God's goodness. She lessens God's goodness uh, by removing the surely eat. You may definitely eat. But notice what else she says. 
But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. That's true. But then she adds something else. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God didn't say that. So, notice what the woman did. Not only did she lessen the goodness of the positive part of the command, but she also increased the penalty. Right? She made God to look less good and more demanding than He actually was. Is that not a great... Uh, a great illustration of what we do with God's law even still. We downplay its goodness and we play up its penalty, making it, in fact, worse than God himself might make it. We still do this with God's commands. We minimize his goodness and we amplify his penalties. And now the serpent just comes right out with a flat denial of God's word. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now just denying outright what God had said. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So having, having opened the door of doubt, Satan now, uh, the serpent now just rushes right in and replaces the truth with a lie. He says, God is holding out on you. He knows that when you eat that fruit, finally your eyes will be opened. Finally, you will know what good and evil is. Now, what does that mean, the knowledge of good and evil? Were man, meant, uh, was, were man and woman meant to live in ignorance in the garden? Blissful ignorance of what good and evil is? No, we would say it's actually a good thing to know the difference, right? In fact, we raise our children. It's a good thing to know the difference between good and evil. So that's not what uh, the serpent is promising, right? It's a good thing to know the difference between good and evil, but what the serpent is offering man is the opportunity to judge that for himself. He's saying, don't trust God's interpretation of what good and evil is. You go find out yourself, God has told you it is not good to eat that fruit. But you know what? You need to find out for yourself. You need to get that knowledge for yourself. You need to be the judge here. The serpent says basically God is not trustworthy. God is not good. Judge for yourselves what is good and what is evil. The serpent doesn't say, listen, you need to follow me instead of him. Rather, what he says is, reject his rule and follow your own hearts. Go your own way. And what happens next? When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, not the wisdom of the Bible, but to, uh, what she thought would be wisdom, she took of its fruit, and she ate, and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So the woman makes her assessment. The fruit looks good. I think I'm going to get a good result out of this. I'm not going to care what God says about it. Let's do it. And in that moment, right, she rebels. And her husband, who was with her, it's not her fault, uh, alone, her husband is with her. He is the one who received the command from God before she was created. 
right? Um, He goes along with her. And that decision will play out a million different ways with a million different people over the rest of the Bible. You can boil everything back down in some sense for every character, uh, for the rest of this story, we'll come back to this moment and this question, did God really say? And those are still, that's, that's still our question, right? Is God good? Does God love me? Can I trust Him? Those are still our questions. Is God good? Does God love me? And can I trust Him? And ever since Adam, from the very bottom of our hearts, we naturally answer no. That's our response. That's our rebellion. So what is the result of our rebellion? The first result is that sin leads to shame and to hiding. Paul mentioned this in our confession of sin, that all of a sudden where there was no shame, now shame is introduced. There probably isn't a more perfect description of kingdom relationships than chapter 2, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There's trust. There's integrity. There's no fear of being exploited No fear of being hurt. They are naked and unashamed. There's no shame. There's no vulnerability. There's no need to hide in the creation kingdom. But then look at what happens when our parents eat the fruit. Chapter 3, 7. The eyes of both were opened, which is what the serpent said would happen. He said, your eyes will be opened. But the question is, do they get what he promised? The eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So their eyes are opened, but the promise was a lie. Or at least uh, it was a lie in a sense, right? They did gain a knowledge of good and evil. But it is not the knowledge of good and evil that you want. Rather than knowing evil as an abstract concept, now they know it in the core of their being. And now you and I know it in the core of our being as well. They grasped for more and they ended up with less. And so here what follows, we have a kind of a textbook definition of how we respond when we are confronted with sin. Right? Usually what's the first thing we do? We cover ourselves. That's what Adam and Eve do, the man and the woman. They look for the nearest thing they can grab, or maybe the biggest thing they can grab, fig leaves, and they try to make a covering. Now, I guess fig leaves are good because they're big, but what happens to a leaf when you pluck it off a tree? It dies. It becomes brittle, and it shrivels up. Not a very good covering. What a great picture of our own efforts to mask our sin. The way that we cover ourselves. You have to keep grabbing more and more leaves because they don't last very long. Our covering only works for a time. What are your fig leaves? How do you justify yourself before other people 
and before God? What kind of self-defense do you muster up when confronted with wrongdoing? How, how is it much like a fig leaf? Does it wither and shrivel under the least bit of sun? They cover themselves, and then notice what happens next. They hide. So we cover ourselves, we hide from God. The main action here happens when the Creator shows up in the garden. They hear Him, and so they hide. Not only do we invent deficient coverings for ourselves, but then we seek to hide from the very person whom we cannot hide from. Like roaches, when the lights turn on, we scatter. Adam and Eve run for the cover of the trees, and so do we. But it doesn't work. When God asks, where are you? He doesn't, it's not like he lost Adam. He doesn't know where they, he doesn't, it's not that he doesn't know where they are, right? It's a rhetorical question. The force of the question is, why are you hiding? An answer that God knows. He knew before he stepped into the garden why they were hiding. But he's drawing them out. And I think this is the peculiar grace of God. He certainly could have just obliterated the whole thing and started over. But what does he do? He approaches the garden and he draws them out. He asks them to come out and explain themselves. And I call this a peculiar grace because we must be made aware of our disease before we will even accept the cure. Adam and Eve are in hiding. And as long as they are in hiding, there is no hope for them. As long as we hide from God, there is no hope that for our forgiveness. So we cover ourselves, we hide from God, and then finally when confronted, we blame others. God confronts them, He says, what have you done? Have you eaten the fruit of the tree? And what does the man say? The woman that you gave me. He blames both God and the woman and takes no responsibility for himself. And when God confronts the woman, she blames the serpent. He tricked me. And so do we. When confronted with our own guilt, we respond by blaming other people, right? By pointing the finger in other directions. So sin results in shame and guilt, but it's not the only result. Shame is not the only result. Sin also leads to judgment, which is what happens next in the story. And I want you to to notice the the parallel structure of this conversation. God uh, confronts man, then he confronts woman, then he curses the serpent, then he deals with the woman, and he deals with the man. So the man, the, the, the questioning of and response to the man frame the whole episode. And his cursing of the serpent is the hinge on which everything else turns. So we're going to come back to the serpent in a minute. But let's look at what he says to the woman. I will surely, there's that emphasis word again, I will definitely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
So woman's distinctive glory, what she was created to be, is now made difficult and painful. She will still be able to bear children, which is a part of God's original command in Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply. That still stands, but now fulfilling that command will be painful, will be difficult. And even though God designed woman to be man's perfect complement and helper, now their relationship will be characterized by manipulation as she seeks to control him and by domination as he attempts to squash her. That's what, uh, it's a difficult, it's difficult to translate, but there at the end, your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. Man and woman, as, as the relationship with God, as man's relationship with God crumbles, is ruptured, so now the relationship between man and woman is ruptured. They cannot get along well. But then to the man, he reserves the longest judgment of all. Because man is the one who is responsible. Look at verse 17. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. Man's peculiar glory, his particular glory is that he was to exercise dominion over the creation. But just as Man rebelled against his creator, so now the creation will rebel against man. Man, where, where before fruit trees sprung up in abundance and man could freely eat, now the only thing that will freely spring from the ground are thorns and thistles. You ever wonder why it's so hard for you to grow good grass in your yard, why it requires lots of chemicals and work and time? Right here, right? Why, why weeds grow easier than fruit trees? Right here, right? That, that as God's relationship with man is ruptured, so now man's relationship with the rest of the world is ruptured. Now the creation rebels against man in his efforts to try to get his food, his living from it. What came with ease before, he will now have to do with sweat and toil. And where there was abundant fruit before, now he simply will get bread. And then finally, we see that they are cast out of God's place. So not only do God's people receive a judgment, but they are also cast out of God's place. They are removed from the garden. And a cherubim with a flaming sword guards the instant. The, uh, the entrance, a sign of judgment uh, waiting to fall. Adam and Eve are removed from the garden and from the tree of life, never to return. This is a pretty bleak picture. Right? All, all of the trials and troubles and heartache in your life find, are found right here. Right? All the thorns and thistles right here. Why can't I get along with my husband? Why do I keep saying hard, harsh words to my kids? Why does she not like me? 
Why do I feel so alone? Thorns and thistles. Why is arthritis or cancer racking my body? Thorns and thistles. Why does God seem so far away? Thorns and thistles. And again and again, this great tragedy will replicate itself throughout Scripture. Again and again, God speaks. And again and again, God's people respond. And then they fall away. So that the Old Testament ends with another exile. As God's servant Israel rejects God's word, chooses to go its own way, worships other gods, and is removed from the promised land. Our story, the story of the fall, is one that repeats itself over and over again. But the question we really ought to ask is, why is Genesis 3.24 not the end of the story? Why doesn't the Bible stop right here? Why isn't it just over? Two things I want to point out to you. First, in Genesis 3.15, in God's judgment on the serpent, there is a glimmer of mercy. Notice that the serpent is not given a chance to repent. He's not given a chance to respond. He is consigned to judgment. He is consigned uh, to his lot. And maybe, just maybe, these verses are only about why people and snakes don't get along. Maybe. But I want you to notice something in Genesis 3.15. God says, I will put strife between you and the woman and between your offspring, your seed, and her seed. That word seed, that word offspring, comes up again and again in Genesis. Genesis is the story of two seeds, of two families. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Okay? That plays itself out again and again in Genesis. And then he says this. He makes it singular. He shall bruise or strike your head. And you shall strike his heel. Right? God is, God is looking forward. This is, this, at least in one interpretation, I admit it's not the only one, but it seems a very compelling one that uh, there's this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And this conflict will culminate when the serpent strikes the seed of the woman on the heel, but he strikes the serpent on the head. I believe that God is telling us that there is a champion to come, a hero who will finally one day defeat the serpent. But there's one more picture I want to point out. Genesis 3.21. As they are being removed from the garden, as they are being exiled, they are not being abandoned. Look at what God does. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now, how did they clothe themselves? Fig leaves. Brittle disappearing fig leaves. And what does God do as He consigns them to their fate outside of the garden? He covers them Himself with animal skins. Which means something had to die in order for them to be covered. 
They are covered in a skin that is not their own. I think it's a foretaste of what God would do when He sends His own Son. When we are covered with a righteousness that is not our own. When someone else has to die in order for us to be rescued. You see, that baby born in Bethlehem would meet the same tempter in the wilderness. But he would not give in to temptation. He would reject the false promise of power, choosing instead to do his Father's will. He would be tempted again in another garden to walk away from the pain that was in front of him. And instead, he looks at his Father and says, Not my will but yours be done. Which is why Paul can say in Philippians chapter 2 that he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Adam grasped for God's power. Jesus said, I'll trust you. I know this is going to be rough. I trust you. That baby born in Bethlehem would wear a crown of thorns as he was hanged on a tree, cursed by man and rejected by God. And he would do all of that for you so that you could come home. So that one day, someday, your sin being paid for and his righteousness covering you like a skin that is not your own, you could enjoy fellowship with God forever in His kingdom. So even though the kingdom is fallen, there is still hope. Even in the midst of judgment, there is mercy. And it is found in Christ alone. That's an invitation. Let's pray. God in heaven, ours is a bleak condition, a bleak picture 